Hi, I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And you're listening to Hawk Talk. Where we talk hawks. Now, if you usually tune in for Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and you are expecting an impeccably professionally produced, carefully outlined uh, podcast, you are here on the wrong week. Hawk Talk is entirely unplanned, entirely unedited, and entirely unprofessional. Uh, yes, and typically pretty unrelated to, you know, the thing in the title of our show, X-Men. So um, there we go. So we haven't done a Hawk Talk in a while because, um, Jay, you have been uh, away turning your, your tiny human into a less tiny human. They're still pretty tiny. Right, but they started out like super tiny, like microverse tiny. That's true. They have roughly doubled in size over the last four months. Over the last five minutes? It's horrifying, actually. You should evacuate. My, my God, I... Just... Should have known not to leave the room. Right. So uh, speaking of that, they are kind of fussy today. So if you hear grumpy baby noises and, and adults trying to soothe them, that's what's going on in the background. Because again, this is Hawk Talk, where we don't actually try to maintain any professional degree of silence. Also, my computer is dying and its fan is really loud. So sorry about that, too. I figure uh, it's either the fan being really loud or it potentially bursting into flames. So that's a better option. Yay. But anyway, Hawk Talk, right. So, as you may recall from a while back, the Hawk Talks we'd been doing were topics chosen by people who donated at a certain level to Equality Florida last year when we did our fundraiser. And we are now uh, doing the last of those episodes. So, Eliana, thank you so much for your immense, your immense patience. And, Miles, what are this week's Hawks? This week's Hawks are independent comics. Uh, Eliana asked us to talk about our favorite independent comics, and um, yeah, so we're, we're going to do that. And I guess to start, we should talk about something that was kind of confusing me at first, which is, so what counts as an independent comic and what doesn't? So that is an argument and a discussion that is about as old as the comics industry itself, and it's one that I decided to basically... Um, skirt by only by by only talking about um independent zines and mini comics this week excellent uh, so, so i am i'm taking i'm taking i'm taking the cheating approach <laughs> that works uh i think i'll be cheating in a different direction myself or perhaps less so i don't know but i know almost nothing about zines and mini comics so i'm interested to hear what you have to say and i have some uh some stuff to, to mention myself that I, I love very dearly uh so yeah do we want to just uh j just dive on in with some of our favorite independent comics nonsense well how are you defining independent comics so uh, like you know like like you were saying it really depends on who you ask for me i mean the, so the obvious thing is not the big two can't be marvel can't be dc that also for me means can't be vertigo vertigo being you know an imprint of dc um real small press like i don't know first second or something i think that would count self-published stuff obviously but counts. you know first second is part of a much much larger publisher well, that's the thing so many are wait who, who wants first second i am completely blanking because oh, okay. it's hawk talk and i'm very tired and have a four-month-old Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I for, for me, that feels like it counts. Stuff in the middle, like Image or Dark Horse, I don't know. That's real ambiguous whether it counts or not. Um, but definitely some of the smaller labels, including some of the stuff I, I grew up on. I, I'm excited to talk about that. But I'm curious about uh, zines and minicomics. Like, I know uh, you were pretty heavily into the zine scene for a long time. We did a zine together about the adventures of Pete and Pete, like, 10 years ago that sort of indirectly led into us doing this very podcast. Yeah, that's that's something that I'm still pretty plugged into and enthusiastic about. But the, the three things I'm going to talk about are ones that have been around for a little bit longer. 
Um, and those are respectively Super Butch by Becky Hawkins and Barry Deutsch, Little Garden by Daryl Ayo, and 44 Presidents and a Letter to a Cat by Maria Sputnik. I think I know half of those people's names. Yay. So Super Butch is actually is a webcomic that also gets gets printed in, in sort of large folio editions. Um, and it is about lesbian culture in the 1940s. Um, it, it's a superhero story, but set, set in the background of and, and very, very heavily, 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 incredibly well-researched um, story set in, again, basically lesbian culture of the 1940s. It's really, really cool. Barry and Becky are both fantastic people. Um, and I... I am I am a sucker for well researched queer history in general, so that is that is up there for me. That's awesome, and that's also interesting because you mentioned it's it's a web comic, and like I guess I hadn't thought about it until now. But web comics versus independent comics, like I'm used to thinking of web comics also almost as a different medium from comic books. But yeah, there's a really fine there's like a very blurry line right there, especially once you start collecting things, you know, in a physical edition. Right, and I I would see web comics as largely independent by the same standards that that print comics are and this one is is a comic that's been being i I guess i should i should i should adjust it's it's a comic that's being serialized online but it's scaled to print so it's it's i i don't really think of it as web native even though it technically is that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah and and certainly there can be a a different vibe although even web comics i mean to tangent briefly because it's hawk talk and we do a lot of tangenting um within web comics obviously there's a great deal of variation from like right. the single panel totally uh in- independent uh, in a different way gags of like xkcd to the occasional many 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 panel continuity bits of like order of the stick say well, and you're looking at two, again, creator-owned webcomics um, that are independently published online. You can also, if, if you want to you know, muddy the waters further, you can look at stuff at places like Webtoons or Tapas. Right, yeah. I mean, hell, like the, the equivalent of podcasting networks, which we've never been a part of, but certainly a lot of folks we know are. Yeah, we don't trust them. Mm, no, they're out to steal our X-Men's for themselves. It's a finite quantity of X-Men's in the world. They're going to mine them with drills and pour them into bottles and sell them to Captain Planet villains. That's a remarkably elaborate scenario. Have you put a lot of thought into this? Uh, I mean, they have. I'm just trying to follow their logic. Freaking villainous X-Men stealer web or podcast network folks. Where were we? What were we talking about? Um, web comics and web comics as independent comics. And the fact that there are, are degrees of independence, even within that, um, so yeah, you yeah. Know, so yeah, comics. Super Butch, right? Super Butch, Super Butch is great. You should all read yeah. it. Yeah, I think I've read a little and I really liked it, and then I got distracted as is my way. Well, you should read more of it. There are like a hundred something pages. I think like one hundred seventy pages up online. That's actually much less intimidating than some of the stuff out there. I remember deciding to catch up on questionable content at one point, and holy crap, that took a long time. Yeah, um, I I tried briefly to read. Um, Wow, now I'm blanking on the name. Again, I am very tired. The comic that everyone's super obsessed with, with the trolls. Oh, uh, Homestuck, right? Yes, yes. I decided to try reading Homestuck, and I got, like, several thousand pages in and concluded that that um, it was just not for me. And mm-hmm. if, 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 it is, if, it, if it's your thing, um, more power to you, and I will be over here with, with you know, the complete lame is, which is slightly shorter. <laughs> yeah yeah the sheer volume of stuff that some creators put out there is is astonishing 
It is, yeah. And that's true in print comics as well. So actually, here's 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 an interesting case. Um, mm-hmm. So one of my favorite comics that I would I would think of as and describe as an independent comic, and that's Finder, which has been both self-published and publisher-published over time, but has, has been creator-owned through all of that. So that's something when I was Googling around, or well, let's be real, Wikipedia-ing around, Googling around was too hard, um, uh, reading about what counts as an indie comic, that's something that came up a lot. Like, creator-owned comics, there seems to be an agreement that, like, even if they're published by somebody, those almost certainly count as as indie. So for Finder, I would certainly describe it that way, even though it's been under a, a major publisher for a while. Yeah, so Finder is maybe my favorite more conventionally styled, somewhat more conventionally styled um, and published comic book. It's a really, really phenomenal series. It's by Carla Speed McNeil. She describes its genre as Aboriginal science fiction, um, which is a great phrase, but also reductive, because one of the things I really love about Finder is that it spans and jumps genres. Like, it's mm-hmm. what what's cohesive about it isn't the genre so much as the world. Yes. No, I always really appreciate that. That's actually something I liked about to tangent over to something that had been on, on my mind uh that may or may not be indie uh i like that about love and rockets as well oh uh, yeah. love and love and rockets like yes you have your major characters um you know like hopi and maggie uh with the stuff jaime does and the various family members and stuff members of the community uh and the stuff that gilbert does but yeah really it's just about these two massive settings and you follow different characters in and around but we should probably take a step back so you described what finder was a bit um how would you describe Love and Rockets? Like, it's been around for a million years. It's been published by Fantagraphics for, like, most or maybe even all of that? I don't know. It, it, it's so staggeringly voluminous. Like, there's, there's so much Love and Rockets, and it's so good. Um, Man, it's... I don't know, because if I'm coming up with a genre, it's going to be two different genres depending on whose stories it is. It's very slice of lifey. Yeah, but I think there's also a lot of magical realism, certainly to Gilbert's stuff set in Palomar. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But also to an extent, like the Locust stuff, the stuff with Maggie and Hopi. Definitely. Like, stuff is just weird, especially earlier on when there are just, like, space explorer lady wrestler characters just interacting with slice of life, day-to-day stuff. Oh, man. So one of my, my greatest Etsy scores of all time, um, when I was looking for fabric to make something for my, my guide daughter... I was I was looking at stretch fabrics and I found someone did like a one-off. I don't know if it's ever been used for anything or what, but it's a fabric de- designed by Jaime Hernandez and Space Babes. That's freaking awesome. It is fucking amazing. And I still I still have like a, a yard or two. I, I bought all of it that I, I could, which was like three yards. Um and and I still have I still have a yard or two of it that that is just sort of waiting for the perfect project because oh god it's so good it's such good fabric oh wait <laughs> no no I've made I've made two things out of it because I made I made a shirt for for my guy daughter and I made KP a dress out of it nice nice because um, obviously if anyone needs a Hernandez space babes dress it's KP uh, KP being the owner of books with pictures in Portland Oregon Katie yes. Bride yes. yes. Um, so, uh, yeah. So Love and Rockets is amazing. Uh, listeners, if you're interested in diving into this massive, massive world, um, there are these two enormous bricks that are like the first many, many years of the Palomar side of things. That's the stuff done by Gilbert Hernandez and the Locus side of things done by Jaime Hernandez. Um, they're probably in libraries. They'd be real expensive. You can also find smaller trade paperbacks, especially of the more recent volumes. 
Mm -hmm. Although I can't imagine not starting at the beginning with that one. There's just so much continuity to it. You know, I think if you are looking for a jumping on point, The Education of Hopi Glass is actually a really good one. Yeah, okay. You know, it's it's later, but yeah, you're I, th that makes sense to me. Um, so yeah, so we've talked about Super Butch. We've touched on uh, Love and Rockets as well. Finder. Uh, you, uh, Finder, yes, of course. Finder's phenomenal. Um, you mentioned you had three zini-type things you wanted to talk about. What's the second one? I do. So the second one is a series, and I, I don't know if it's still in print as mini-comics. Some of it is online. It's called Little Garden. It's by Daryl Ao, who is... An awesome, awesome, again, an awesome person. Like a lot of the, all of these are actually by people, by, by friends of mine, because this is, this is what happens when you were in this, in, with the Zine, Zine and Mini Comics worlds. Um, but Daryl is a very, very good friend, actually officiated tea in my wedding. Um, and Little Garden is this extremely gentle, episodic, um, sort of fantasy, sort of slice of life comic about agrarian lesbian monster ladies. That is a series of words I would not have thought of in that order, but I'm intrigued. It's incredibly soothing. Um, it's it's one of those comics that I can just sort of zone out and sit and read a lot of and just kind of feel better about things. That's a really nice thing to have in the world as the world is. And it's yeah. also, it's it's funny and it's neat. And I really like Daryl's art. Like it doesn't, there's, there's not a lot that I can, I can really concretely compare it to which is nice mm-hmm mm -hmm. so like he, I... or sorry i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna bat it back to you though because you mentioned that okay. you have you have some books on on tap for this too i do yeah so probably the first so there were a few indie comics that i grew up on there were three um and i don't know how independent we would call them at this point especially because one of them is teenage mutant ninja turtles the original uh, Mirage Studios comics were a big deal to me as a child. I came into the Ninja Turtles through the cartoon. I'm, I'm 41, so I was like the right age for it. Um, but my dad happened to have like a bunch of the old Mirage Studios stuff. And so I read the living hell out of that. And it's, I don't know, a lot of people sort of like to play up just how dark and gritty and bloody it is. And like, Sometimes, yes, but not always, and the tone was all the fuck over the place. You would have, you know, the Ninja Turtles cutting the hell out of the Shredder, and then you would have, like, a giant fig alien trying to convince a little girl to travel through time to change the way the world was, and reality kept getting altered, and this, and Boo Swain the Nat Rat then turned into the Fanny Whacker, who was a Punisher parody, and it was just like... It was all over the place. You would have, you know, this this villain in dinosaur times, like, channeling volcanoes, and Cerebus showed up, but was less misogynistic than in his own comic. And um, it's hard to overstate how weird the old TMNT was, and I was there for that shit when I was a kid. And not just because I was over-the-top obsessed with Ninja Turtles, which I totally was. So there was that. And then there was ElfQuest. Um, ElfQuest has been around, done by the same family, uh, originally a couple, and I think now maybe their son is, um, is involved in it. Uh, it's been, that's been going on for decades and decades and decades. And I had the first six trades, I think, when I was a kid. And it's this incredibly well-realized world with this complex history and these incredibly compelling characters and a bigger and bigger cast, but they're all varied enough and you get to know who they are. Um, it was also, for something being read by a child, not 
like pornographic by any means, but surprisingly sexual. And uh, I'm sure that was part of the draw for me. I'm like, oh, this is this makes me feel a little funny. I'm I, I'm intrigued, but also confused. Um, so it's not like a kid's comic, but I think I was in the right place for it, and uh, that it's still going. Like technically, it ended. And then just like the movies of Hayao Miyazaki, the creators were like, well, maybe we have a little more. And I suspect it's going to keep going like that for as long as the creators are alive. But that one was a big deal to me. Jan, I remember, did you ever read ElfQuest, like, through the trades I had or anything else? I started it. And this is this is not a judgment. This is basically a personal aesthetic thing. I, the, 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 time I, the time I tried, I found the art just incredibly off-putting. The elf characters, like, there are human characters in it, and they just look like human characters. The elf characters look weird, it's true. Like, you know, big heads, big eyes. Um, It's definitely an art style you're either cool with or you're not cool with. I get that. Yeah, and it's it's been long enough. Like, I, I would probably be fine revisiting it now. Like, it was, it was, I think, high school or college when I, when I gave it a try. Mm-hmm. So I should, I should really probably get back and, and read some of it at some point. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, like, evangelize it the way I would some things, but for me, that that was formative, and I still really like it. Like, I, I went, th- I read through the complete Elf Quest that was recently published um, a couple years back, and um, read all the stuff I had read, read all the stuff I hadn't read. Holds up pretty well overall. Um, I also appreciate that the politics in terms of gender and sexuality have evolved with the times a bit. Because the early stuff would be considered kind of heteronormative and gender essentialist, and like the later stuff is much less so, which is very nice. Nice. It's always really neat to see long-term projects where you can see that evolution. That's something that's really interesting in long-running and especially multi-generational comics, newspaper comic strips as well. Oh yeah, I believe that for newspaper comic strips especially, because for me, I mean, you know, I so much of that thinking of the old newspaper comics is they are they are of the past, but no, that stuff has been. continuing well into this very day yeah and you have you have you know different editorial regimes and different different syndicates and publishers and different um different people who are making the comics because often again with with some of the really long-running stuff you have like multi-generational creative teams as you mentioned elfquest does mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah fascinating stuff there and i think that's something that's kind of cool i mean not that i'm a big fan of dynasties or anything but that's something that's kind of cool about indie stuff is it's less like the sort of mercenary work-for-hire way that Marvel and DC often do things. And that's not, like, an inherently bad way to do things. But it can be really cool seeing a a creator, or a creator and then, like, their protege, be that their child or somebody else, just have control over this story for the long haul. Yeah, it's interesting seeing what one person or one group of people, one creative team does. It's interesting seeing how individual priorities and sensibilities get reflected in that. And obviously that's not something that's going to be, it's not that independent comics are are pure in ways that the, that, that company owned comics aren't. Um, Because I mean, obviously anyone who's making them is presumably still making them with an audience in mind and, and all of the considerations that go with that. But it's, it's a different, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got a different DNA makeup and, and it's interesting seeing how that plays out. Mm-hmm. Totally, yeah. So, um, yes, the third and final indie comic I grew up on uh, was a comic called Nexus, um, which has also moved to various larger publishers over the years. Um, it's a space opera. It was about this guy who an alien said, hey, the universe is unjust. I now give you powers to make it just, but like you have to 
subscribe to my sense of justice and kill all these people who I think are evil. And so as a kid, that kind of a morality play, like those sort of philosophical conflicts, that was really cool. Plus the space opera was really cool. There were some neat aliens. In more recent years, at least one of the creators has gone hard, hard alt-right, and that is not my favorite thing. Um, I haven't revisited the comic. It just... Sometimes I can get past a creator getting weird. Other times I can't. In this case, I can't. I don't think there's like a right or wrong answer there. It's a very individual thing. But um, that was good shit when I was a kid. That was um, I don't remember who published it. It was it was a very very small publisher. First comics maybe. So yeah, those were my my big three. My first indie comics, and I'm glad I had those as a kid. Like it wasn't just Marvel stuff I was reading as much as I obviously love Marvel. Like it was nice to get that window into oh, this is an entire medium across, and there are multiple ways of like making comics exist and putting them in a shared universe or not, and having them run by a big company or not. Uh so yeah, yeah, those are those are special to me. So yes, but speaking of trilogies, you had a third uh zine that you wanted to talk about i did and that the mini comic it's called 44 presidents and a letter to a cat it's by maria sputnik and it's exactly what it sounds like uh, are the are the presidents and the cat letter like related or I, i'm intrigued I, I mean they're in the same mini comic it's it's portraits of 44 presidents and then a letter to a cat I love that zines can do that. I love that the format of a zine is whatever the fuck the creator of the zine wants the format to be like there are no rules or limits well, and there are things that make odd bedfellows that fit really well or overlap in really, really neat ways or that, that fit that format in ways that no other, you know, that they, they wouldn't in, in others. And I, yeah, I, I, zines and mini comics are, are definitely part, will, will all, are always going to be, you know, a big chunk of where my heart lives. Mm-hmm. For real. Um, should we talk a little bit about the, the ones that we did, like the Pete and Pete one and then the X-Men one that we did early on for the show? Eh, I mean, they're asking about our favorites, and those are those are good and all, but <laughs> fair, yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, actually one mini comic that um is one I always think of in the format is done by a friend of the show and fellow ex podcaster, um, uh, Adam Rack, uh, Bishop and Jubes. It's a oh, comic yeah, about definitely. like Bishop and Jubilee, and it's really freaking fun. And I mean, there are so many, like so many friends of the podcast have so many mini comics. That's just like the one that's on my mind right now. I certainly don't want to exclude anyone. Like there's so much good stuff out there. Yeah, man, I'm thinking of more independent comics. And so what? where would you put a creator-owned comic that was originally published by Vertigo and is now a webcomic and is up, up for free online? Because Kyle Baker's stuff, Kyle Baker's creator-owned stuff is occupies this weird liminal space right yeah, versus mainstream a lot of it was published by vertigo but it feels right. extremely indie it's well, just now it's weird just up as at his website okay um but yeah like i remember um why i hate saturn we loved that one god i love we that were... that that i i owe way too many of my speech patterns to that comic god you really do don't you I that's really, true really do. i really <laughs> really do yeah like I wouldn't call his comics slice of life stuff because they're weird and weird stuff. They're a slice of something. Yeah, um, they're very character driven. But God, the dialogue, like, uh, what was the one character who talks about how she tries to bemoan while sitting? Well, I sit here bemoaning my fate because if I bemoan while lying down, I get scotch in my hair. (laughs) Yes, it's so good. Yeah, that was kind of a revelation when we were in college because you know, I mean, oh no, that was high school. That was high school. I I read that comic sitting in one of the armchairs in the Sarasota Barnes and Noble. 
Damn. Yeah, we used to yeah. hang out there a fair bit, didn't we? Yeah, they had wasn't... a surprisingly decent graphic novel section. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they still do, or if that even still exists. I don't know. I haven't been there no in idea. ages. Yeah, no that that was that was incredible stuff. Um, and yeah, like uh, after that, I remember in college, I think, and maybe a little bit after, um, we got turned into Jim Ottaviani's um, science comics. Yeah, which I which, still think about a lot. Yeah, I would, I would, I would put those as independent because GT Labs is an independent publisher, and those are those are amazing. I especially suspended in language. That's like one of those comics that just has stuck with me so hard for so long, which is a biography of Niels Bohr. Yeah, um, I my, my favorite. I mean, I, this is just probably an artifact of me going to school for psychology back in the day. But I really like Wire Mothers about the um, the Wire Mother cloth monkey uh, Wire Mother cloth mother monkey experiments. Um, which it was cool. You know, I learned about those in college and then seeing it represented in a more narrative and visual format, which is such a neat, different take on the entire thing. But yeah, Adaviani has done a bunch of those and they're all really cool. And I love the idea of science communication in a comic book format. Yeah. Like not, not just because it's going to appeal more to say younger people in theory, but it's just, it's so cool learning about a part of the world from a different angle. Like, it's not necessarily a better angle or a worse angle, but I feel like you can learn more about a concept if you approach it from different media instead of just from one. Well, so I actually interviewed Jim Adaviani about Wire Mothers um, ages and ages and ages ago. And one of the things that came up um, was that he, one of the things that had really drawn him to comics as a, as a vehicle for science communication was the fact that science communication is already very heavily visual. And heavily mm-hmm. visually oriented, um, and that's that's a, a translation and sort of a, a format hop that never would have occurred. That likewise never would have occurred to me. But but for him as as a scientist who who was also very steeped in comics, just like made perfect sense. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a good point. That I hadn't really thought about it that way. And um, yeah, certainly, I, I maybe just because I write too many comics, but for me, that makes it so much more accessible to just lean into that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Man. Um, yeah, so oh god, other indie there's there's so much out there. Like I I feel like we could go on forever. I do definitely want to call out Jeff Smith's Bone. Um which I think may have also ended up being published by a larger publisher, but I think was was first either self-published or very small press published. I um think although I may be wrong that it's at Scholastic or was it Scholastic? Okay, that that's a good place for it to be. Yeah, cuz Bone is like I mean, I guess it's a kids comic. It's it's about these cartoon characters and it's like silly a lot of the time. But it's also one of the best comic book stories I've ever read. Like the storytelling in it and the cartooning are are damn near perfect. Um, it's it's also nice that it's relatively self contained. I'm sure there's been more, but like I, I first read it in this this big thick volume that was like the whole main story, and uh, I was not expecting to, to get nearly as engrossed by something that looked like a Saturday morning cartoon, like the kind of Saturday morning cartoon we grew up on. Um. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, were there any specific call-outs uh, you uh, wanted to talk about? I have, like, this giant this collection, but I don't want to, like, monopolize the conversation, you know? Yeah, so I really brought the, I guess, four specific titles to this um, because I was very tired and because part of the premise of Hawk Talk is, is you know, no research, and I try really hard to stick to that despite my, my very strong impulses to the contrary. <laughs> that is That is legit, yeah. Um, well, there's something that I was wondering what your memories of, uh, were, um, Sophie Campbell's, uh, comics. Oh shit. Wet Moon. Yes. Wet Moon yeah, is amazing. And, and, and Shadow Eyes. And Shadow mm-hmm. Eyes. I, I, I love Sophie. I love pretty much everything Sophie Campbell does. 
Uh, so Sophie Campbell, I think I first discovered her work through the old Exalted role-playing game source mm-hmm. books. Um, but yeah, yeah, she was, she's incredible. Uh, I remember you found, like, back when we were younger, um, she did a picture of this, this, like, bug person, this fly person. Yeah, of a fly puka. World of Darkness Yeah, that was it. That was uh, great. It was so gross and cool. One of the things that I really love about Sophie's stuff is how enthusiastically she embraces and leans into monstrousness. Like, that's something that I, I tend to really look for and love in artists, and it's something that she does absolutely amazingly. Oh, to come full circle, she actually drew the cover of the first zine I made. Oh, right! I'd forgotten about that! One that Jen Vaughn and I did together a million years ago. Oh, what was the name of that again? It was Supergirl Adventure Comics, but, like, with three R's. Like Riot Girl. Girl. Yeah. Yes. Ha! Oh, that's so cool. And then comics um, with I, an X. I, th- I think um, Sophie Campbell was the first artist I ever bought an original piece from way back in the day. So cool. it's a drawing of Mohawk Storm. is still up on my wall to this day. <laughs> I-, I learned how stupidly expensive custom framing was when I went to get it custom framed and was somewhat horrified, but it looks really good, so I guess it worked out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know. So how would we how would we classify something like... If we're going for sort of middle tier publishers counting as independent because they're not big too, then I guess like thing like something like Saga would count, but Saga feels so mainstream. Like Image does that. It's so successful. I mean, it's very, very good. It's still one of my favorite comics, but does it count as indie? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I so the publisher relationship I feel like is what defines things as indie or not. And image is a hard one to parse because the involvement of the publisher is so variable from book to book. Yeah, and it was certainly founded as, like, very much a, a central creator-owned house. Like, that was mm-hmm. part of the, the point when it started back in the 90s, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, for Saga, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd i always be very interested to be like, hey, I'm reading this image book. How much is it just the creators doing their thing and image slapping a logo on it and marketing it? And how much is image involved in the creation? But yeah, you don't really... There's no, like, grand list of that sort of thing so that I know I of. So, I believe that for the most part, it's the la- um, image books are default to the latter. Mm-hmm. Like, I know the company has a, a pretty small staff, for instance. The company has a pretty small staff. Um, I know enough people who do free, who've done, who've done or do freelance editorial work on image books to, to be, to, to understand that you don't, as a default, have an editor in the sense that you might have an editor in a more conventional publisher. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, I guess that seems, I mean, as successful as some image books are, um, I mean, God, some of them are ridiculously successful. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess they would, I, I would still count them. And, and it's not like a yeah. moral judgment or anything, but um, I'm just fascinated by this idea of, like, where is the line? And there just isn't one. Right. Hmm. Creative ownership is probably the easiest place to draw it. But again, that entirely shuts out publisher relationships and and relative you know publishing power and i yeah again it's there's just not an easy line to draw mhm totally but uh yeah so i guess those are the those are the big ones i mean i have my other favorites like i don't know freaking kim and kim or that like prince of persia one shot comic that i'm obsessed with at first second did years ago or so Scott here's Pilgrim. a question would you say that a licensed comic can be indie yes uh i would not often call it that okay well i guess i, I just thought i wasn't going to talk about prince of persia i'm going to talk about prince of persia um <laughs> so first second who as we established is probably owned by someone big but we can't remember who i'm going to um, google this right now you're going to hear my keyboard sorry 
Okay, that's all good. Uh, keyboard will be the, the fourth host along with uh, the two of us and, and your child. Um, but yeah, so I've, I think most people have probably heard of the Prince of Persia video games. They've been around for decades at this point. There was a Macmillan. It's the division weird. of Macmillan. Macmillan. Okay. Yeah. So not like, you know, Time Warner or something, but still, yeah, big, big company. Time um, Warner isn't primarily a publishing company. Well, right, but I just know they own, like, DC. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, so Prince of Persia, it it was kind of based on the games in that it is uh, set in a vaguely Persian setting, and there are some acrobatics and, like, a villainous vizier-type character just, like, in the games, but it really just told its own story. Like, it was almost kind of a pulp story uh flavored in that setting's direction i really liked it i haven't read it in many many years so i don't know maybe it's horrifyingly problematic and i'm just forgetting that i mean certainly the games could be seen that way but again i question whether you can qualify that as independent it's licensed it's subject to approvals it's it goes through you know two separate corporate processes like even if it even if it, it even if it deviates pretty significantly from the original media it's still fundamentally derivative of of that media that's true yeah and so i think that's a really interesting example because in some ways it feels very indian in other ways like you're describing like it's kind of not i mean freaking ubisoft i think does the prince of persia games and they're like a big evil empire uh quite evil as i understand in some ways but um so yeah that was just such a weird thing to exist um and i'm glad it does because like i said i like it I, i hope it holds up maybe i'll read it again and maybe i'll be horrified um but yeah just the ambiguity here and it seems appropriate that independent comics are inherently ambiguous in their definition like that just seems uh just i guess how so i don't know i mean to me indie comics just there's this sort of inherently anarchic spirit to them just like you can do what you want there are not the same types of restrictions and boundaries that there would be in a mainstream comic that's going to be concerned with mainstream sales for a specific demographic okay and so the fact that then you know that anarchism extends to the very definition of what counts and what doesn't just feels sort of situationally enjoyable to me i guess so we are about out of time uh thank you so much for joining us on this weird romp um hawk talk is going on hiatus for now we're gonna go back to our three weeks on one week off schedule um it's possible it'll it'll come back again someday we'll see we shall see maybe once your kid's old enough we uh we can have that official third co-host i i mean i wish i could just put them on right now i wish i wish they vocalized predictably because they have just discovered pterodactyl screeches and it is glorious this week's hawks are pterodactyl noises cue 35 minutes of pterodactyl noises oh yes oh yes so when they wake up and i'm I'm gonna be i'm gonna be an obnoxious parent and just talk about my baby for a little while Um, (laughs) dig it when they wake up in the morning they usually wake up in a pretty good mood like their babies do stuff wake up explosively and they just hang out and talk to the mobile above their crib for about half an hour and just vocalize and, and just make make noises at it and it's it is the funniest cutest thing and like t and i are just like in, and it wakes us up because it's very usually very loud um <laughs> but like the two of us are just like under the covers trying to stifle giggles so we don't disturb them <laughs> that is that is pretty excellent uh, yeah so babies funny. seem very bad at volume modulation either that or they're very good at it but just have different intentions than you assume
You know, uh, I, I certainly subscribe to the more is more school of thought in some ways, and I guess volume could potentially be one of those ways in some circumstances.